This is Neil Conan with a special edition of Truth, Politics, and Power. At first thought, Jane Levy's wonderful new biography of Babe Ruth might seem a little off our usual subject areas, but it turns out the book is about a lot more than baseball. The full title is The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. Another way to describe that world is the American century. To be sure, the American century has many creators. You can make an argument for the Wright brothers or Henry Ford or Theodore Roosevelt and dozens more. But after reading The Big Fella, you might also have to make room for the young man who a hundred years ago was about to burst into fame and success that has to be measured on a completely new scale. As the first subject of America's celebrity culture, Babe Ruth strode across the back pages of newspapers, seized the imagination of a nation on the new medium of radio, harnessed the new power of mass marketing, and lent his name and image to a thousand products for a price. The Big Bam utterly transformed the meaning of stardom and charted the way for everyone from Charles Lindbergh to Donald Trump. My old friend Jane Levy joins us now from her home in Washington, D.C. It's great to have you on the show, and congratulations. Thanks so much, Neil. A phrase that comes up again and again in your book is larger than life. And there are, there are aspects of myth in the story of Babe Ruth that many might more associate with saints rather than ballplayers. Tell us the story of Johnny Sylvester. Oh, that's a good one. So this is in 1926, and it's a perfect emblem of what made Ruth Ruth in in all the ways you described. So there's a kid named Johnny Sylvester in New Jersey who falls off a horse and is injured. And according to lore, what happened was that his father, who was a banker, as it turns out, therefore connected, managed to get a message to the Yankees and to Babe Ruth in St. Louis, where they were playing the World Series, that they thought that a baseball might you know, really cheer him up. And so Babe Ruth sends a ball and he promises to hit a home run for him. And then he sends a second ball and and, and I'm going to hit two home runs for you. Well, by the time the World Series ends with Babe Ruth, you know, making the final out by trying to steal second base and getting caught, he comes home, uh, he's at Yankee Stadium. The next day, he and his agent, Christy Walsh, who was really the original Jerry Maguire, with daily news photographers and reporters in tow, arrive at Johnny Sylvester's home in New Jersey. Now, by this point, you know, people are talking about that he was dying and that he was saved by Babe Ruth, which is not true. But there, Babe Ruth is at his front door. He knocks on the door. The housekeeper answers. I'm here to see uh, Johnny Sylvester, who may I say is calling, Babe Ruth. He goes upstairs, and Johnny's sitting up in bed in the pictures that appeared on the front of the New York Daily News. He is looking pre- <laughs> he's looking mighty fine. There was none of this, you know, his head wasn't wrapped, nothing. Um, but he was gobsmacked, as everyone would have been to have Babe Ruth show up. And, of course, this was all plotted by his agent who realized that the headlines it would generate would be uh, salutatory to say the least. So the next day, you know, Dr. Ruth pays, make, pays a, uh, a house call, not just in the Daily News, but also in the New York Times. And it's perfect because this is a guy who was a gamer in the original sense of the word. He was game for anything. He was a man who was, who was raised to make promises 
and keep promises. So if he says he's going to hit a home run for a kid, yeah, I'll hit the home run for the kid. No problem. And he was also a guy who was very aware of his value to baseball, to the Yankees, to the culture, and was smart enough to hire an agent who amplified that using the tabloids, in this case, the New York Daily News and having the reporters tag along. And he was, I mean, you know, I can imagine how he must have appeared looming over this little boy in bed. But of course, the end of the story that's, that's quite astonishing is that by the time Ruth is dying in 1948, the story by Hollywood gets completely transposed into Johnny being at a hospital in Chicago at the 1932 World Series and literally <laughs> dying. So people still believe <laughs> that version of it when, in fact, he was nowhere near dying. Uh, Johnny Sylvester mm -hmm. did, in fact, he was a Princeton graduate. And he showed up to say to pay his respects for Babe Ruth as he was dying in New York in 1948. Now, you mentioned in that story the importance of a particular kind of newspaper, the big city tabloid, and in particular, the New York Daily News. Now, the Daily News is still with us, but just a shadow of what it once was. Tell us about the significance of that camera logo we see on the front page and the slogan, New York's Picture Newspaper. So the Daily News is uh, America's first tabloid, born in June 1919. It was the brainchild of Captain Joseph uh, Patterson, uh, part of the great Chicago Tribune family. And he had been in Europe during the war, and he had seen what tabloid journalism could do in London. And he came home with the idea and got enough funding from the family to, to launch this thing. And it was initially called the Illustrated Daily News because there weren't that many cameras and there, weren't, there wasn't that many uh, you know, images that you could use. So they used a lot of drawings. Um, but as, as time went on, and, and it happened really quite quickly, uh, the Daily News photo department, a guy named Lou Walker and another guy named Henry Olin, managed to invent kinds of uh, lenses and cameras that could capture sports action, both in the dark at an arena and to uh, be able to catch all of a baseball diamond so that people who weren't at the ballpark could actually see what happened. I mean, this is before radio, Neil. So they dropped the name Illustrated mm -hmm. uh, from, the, the, from the logo and insert one of those fabulous you know, cameras right in the middle um, because Joe Patterson made it clear to his reporters, we don't want to give them too many words. This is a newspaper in which image is going to predominate. And it's, it's, it's the beginning of a cultural you know, redefinition where words cease to have quite as much meaning and the pictures are allowed to tell the story. Which is, as much as anything else, one of the stories of the American century. Yes, and, and the thing about it is, what they did in addition, and this was in November of 1919, Patterson had hired as a managing editor a guy named Arthur Clark, who had been a sports writer in Omaha. Not that Arthur Clark, the other Arthur Clark. The other Arthur Clark, not Arthur C. Clark. Um, and this guy had gotten the tabloid bug. He was working <laughs> yeah. at, a, at a Hearst paper, and Hearst was slow to get the idea of the tabloid, and he wouldn't launch his uh, version until 1924, and he had a lot of catching up to do, and they never would catch up completely. But what 
Arthur Clark realized and Joe Patterson realized was that sports was going to sell their newspaper. So in November, he conceives the idea of a back page for sports stories. And they're going to fill those, those back pages with pictures. In fact, when Babe Ruth arrives in New York, having been sold uh, to the Yankees on December 26, 1919, for $100,000, the top half of the back page that day was pictures of Babe. Now, they were quite static because they hadn't yet figured out uh, the, the advances that would come in the next two years. But uh, there he was. And, you know, the back page became a staple of sports writing, not just in New York, but across the country. In fact, it was still so important that when Jonas Cespedes' agents were uh, negotiating his last contract with the New York Mets, part of their presentation to management was how many back page mentions he had gotten. And they valued the number he had gotten as $3.2 million as, it, as part of the argument for how much he should be paid. And if you wanted to calculate the value of Ruth's image on the back page as well, I think we're probably into trillions. But it wasn't just images. Now, you cite any number of famous writers whose careers are closely associated with Babe Ruth. That includes Damon Runyon, who, of course, became famous for Guys and Dolls, Westbrook Pegler and Haywood Brune, little remembered today, but who moved from the sports page to become nationally prominent political columnists. Haywood Brune's famous lead, The Ruth is Mighty and Shall Prevail, I think I think that was taught for decades in journalism school. It must have been fun to go back over that stuff. It was great. I mean, my eyes didn't like it too much, but yes, it was great. You know, People talk about the golden era of sports in the 1920s with Ruth and, and Rockne and... Uh, what was the name of that horse, Neil? You know, the horse. Red Grange, the galloping ghost. Yeah, but it was also the golden age of newspaper and particularly of sports writing. But sports writing wasn't what it is and what it became today, uh, what it has what it evolved in today. It was guys, as t Paul Gallico, the sports editor of the Daily News and, and its columnist would say, it was guys who would sit up high above the field in the press box and write parables of good and evil. They never went down to the locker room and, and, and asked for quotes. I mean, why get quotes? They knew what the story was. They were going to determine what the story was. Larry Merchant, a, a longtime tabloid writer at the, uh, at the New York Post, once said, if guys had gone down to the locker room in those days, we'd know whether Babe Ruth had really called his shot in the 32 World Series. But they didn't ask, go for quotes. And one of the great ironies is that these guys had complete access to Babe Ruth. They dined at his house. They took him hunting and fishing. Marshall Hunt, who was the originator of 24-7 coverage, he was assigned to cover Babe Ruth in season uh, and off season, day and night. He would go with him on these spring training uh, jaunts into the countryside to look for what Babe liked to call his, um, you know, country dinners, uh, which were f fried chicken and the local daughter. A name that surprised me in that pantheon was Ford Frick, later commissioner of baseball, but once Babe Ruth's ghost. How did that work? Well, I mean, it was completely corrupt. <laughs> and and, and so Christy Walsh, the agent, operated a, a newspaper syndicate that produced 
treacle and I mean to use the the the, the Bronx <laughs> expression, Drek under the names of great athletes, and he was a out of work PR guy and ad man and sports cartoonist who was desperate to find a way to make a buck in February 1921 when he seized on this idea of a ghostwriting syndicate. Ghostwriting had been around, but it had never been uh, systematically done by any one syndicate. I think the modern word is weaponized. Yes, (laughs) exactly right. So what he did, and this was a story his nephew told me, he, uh, everybody wanted a piece of Bay Ruth in, in 1921. So he found out where he was staying, climbed up the outside fire escape, found the window of Babe's room open a crack, climbed through it, found him in bed with a blonde, slapped him on the butt and said, I want to represent you. Now, this is the kind of moxie that Babe Ruth would have admired, as well as the offer to pay him 10 times what his earlier alleged dispatches were were earning him. Those, Westbrook Pegler said, would amount to a telegram saying, hit another today. So what Christie Walsh did is he created a stable, having gotten Babe Ruth to sign on with him, he created a stable of all, pretty much all the top athletes, and he would match them with a sports writer who was was designated to write things that Walsh later described as not really the way the guy sounded, but the way the public thought he sounded, which may explain why so many of them were so stupid. Anyway, um, Ford Frick was a beat guy in New York, and he was the main ghost for Babe Ruth until he left to become a flack for the National League. And then, of course, as you know, later the president of the National League and then commissioner of baseball. And would play a role later in Ruth's life in that capacity. But uh, let's stay with Christy Walsh for a minute. He, he is the progenitor. He is the, the model, the first of a cast of people that, well, I, I guess it's familiar today as Scott Boris. He's not quite equivalent to a modern-day super agent, but the next best thing. Yeah, and, and the reason he wasn't a modern-day equivalent, he was doing everything that Scott Boris does today except analytics and that he wasn't allowed in to negotiate Ruth's contract with the Yankees. That was a long-held rule, you know, enforced by ownership who had all the power uh, until Marvin Miller came along and, and strengthened the Major League Players Association. I mean, for example... Roger Maris, when he went to negotiate his contract in 62 after breaking Ruth's home run record, wasn't even allowed to bring his brother to negotiate with George Weiss's brother being an accountant. So it was an unfair and completely unequal kind of negotiation. Walsh did try, however, to get in and was rebuked. And the best he could do and he resorted to it in the spring of 1927, the winter of 27, before Babe Ruth signed uh, a three-year deal that would pay him 70 grand a year, was he, he did role-playing on a train ride from L.A. to Utah, where he, said, where he pretended to be Jacob Rupert. And then, you know, he said, now I'm going to say, well, babe, you know, you've earned, you've, you're earning as much as uh, the entire team. Why should I pay you more? And then... And, it, and then Christy Walsh said, and what are you supposed to say, babe? And he coached him on the art of leverage, which Babe Ruth knew how to apply only with a baseball bat. <laughs> right, yeah. And he tried to educate him to 
argue on behalf of his worth, not just as a baseball player who, who hit baseballs out of ballparks, but who brought people into the stands. What was the famous headline after that? He, he came, he saw, he compromised. Let's take a short break. <laughs> yes. I'm talking with Jane Levy, whose books include biographies of Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle. Her new book is The Big Fellow, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. I'm Neil Cummings, and this is Truth, Politics, and Power. This is Truth, Politics, and Power. I'm Neil Conan, and my guest is Jane Levy, who's just out with The Big Fellow, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. Now, we talked a bit about that world transformed by technology and mass media and the back pages of the newspaper, the, the radio, newsreels, the movies, all of that fed not so much on accomplishments, but on personality. Now, Ruth obviously had personality in spades. How did that intersection work? How did Ruth's personality emerge as a commodity? Well, it was a time in America when everything in the media was being redefined in a way that amplified fame. You weren't famous anymore just for what you did, but for who you were. And that became bigger and bigger as the advent of radio, telex, a telepic system created by the Chicago Tribune, which allowed you to send pictures overnight from New York to Chicago or New York, even to Los Angeles. So fame was getting bigger. And what you needed to fill that kind of fame was personality. And Ruth is really the guy who was the intersection or the transition between sports and entertainment sports and Hollywood. And he and Walsh really understood that his value to the Yankees was much greater simply than the wins and that he, that he produced for them, that he was really enhancing with every tuchus he put in every seat the value of the franchise. And he was never adequately um, you know, paid for that. There was, there's no, they, they would have gone broke trying to pay him for that. Ruth was a man of gargantuan appetites, the food, the beer, the women. Where did that come from? Well, you know, when I started out to do this, Neil, I, I was as skeptical as every reader has said to me, you know, why, what made you think you could find anything new? And I wasn't sure I wanted to write this book. I wanted to write, write a novel about him originally because I wanted to inhabit the caricature that he had become, and I thought that was the only way to do it. What surprised me was that the digital availability of old newspapers and old family documents filled in the absent people, friends, and family. The voices of the documents spoke to me, and they told me a story that Babe Ruth had managed to keep quiet through all his 53 years and another 70 since. His childhood was never explained in any of the biographies that have come before this one. And I'm not blaming my predecessors. They all tried and they all did a very good job um, of telling his life as a ball player, which was kind of what sports biographies were. They were a subgenre of real biographies. But <laughs> I had a sense that to explain the personality of the guy who became the big fella, I had to understand 
and find out about the little boy that his family called Little George. And the story is, is, is simply this. He came from not just a broken home, but a shattered childhood. His parents divorced. So, of course, he wasn't anxious to tell that story. That's not something people bragged about on 60 Minutes interviews and got sympathy for. Um, his parents, George Sr. and Kate, divorced in May 1906 after George found his wife in a compromising position with one of his bartenders. He threw her out. He, she came back once to get her clothes. $45 worth of them, he pointed out in a deposition. He had bought them after she gave birth to their last child. In May uh, 1906, there, there were still three children from that union. It's not clear whether she gave birth to eight kids or six kids, but in whichever it is, Babe Ruth by that point had seen four of his siblings die in infancy. And once Kate is out of the picture, Babe Ruth is sent off to live in a reform school called the St. Mary's Industrial School for Boys. And because he never wanted to talk about this, because he had every reason in that time and place to want to hide these facts, it allowed mythology to grow. And the myths were, were colliding. One was that he was an orphan, which he did deny at a great length. He said, I had parents, but he would never explain what became of those parents. And the other myth was that he was an incorrigible, a kid sent to St. Mary's who from the courts because he was out of control, that, that the, the little version of the guy you described with all mm -hmm. those appetites. None of that is true. But he allowed those myths to prosper and fester and grow because it was more uh, acceptable than telling the truth. You point out a couple of important things. You ask a sensible question about how much of an incorrigible he could be when he was sent away at the age yeah. of seven. And the other part, that he was sent away not just once, but repeatedly. He would occasionally go home for the, for the holidays or, or for weekends and then get sent back banished. Again, his, his sister didn't go. No, and, and I think that the repeated, at the, at the risk of sounding, you know, um, psychobabble, but, uh, you know, the repeated uh, banishment what had to have been incredibly traumatic. He was first sent in June uh, 1902. Now, the main source of familial history was his sister Mamie, the only other child to survive into adulthood. And she always said, well, he was sent to St. Mary's because he wouldn't go to school and that it was her job to walk him to school and make sure he went in the front door. Well, in June 1902, she was, she was two years old, so she wasn't walking him to school, and besides which, everybody else in Baltimore would have been getting out of school. What had happened was that um, several, uh, there had been several incidents in George Sr.'s bar. He had been cited for letting kids, having kids, what the language was, in his place, playing pool. Um, and there was a local beat cop named Harry C. Birmingham, who was a friend of George Sr.'s from childhood and whose beat included uh, George's bar, which was at that time at uh, 426 West Camden Street in Baltimore. And it was Harry who basically said, you know what, this is not good for this kid. And he's the one who delivered Babe Ruth to St. Mary's. He was allowed to come home, as you pointed out, 
for a holiday leave at Christmas. Uh, the ins and outs for the next couple of years are unclear because all the documents uh, for St. Mary's burned in a 1919 fire. But what I did find in a uh, ledger from Catholic Charities were the dates, uh, you know, that he went in and when he went out. And the, the date that they cited for when he went in was 1902. And one of the, one of the requirements was that parents turn over uh, guardianship to the school. To the, to the superintendent of the school. He was a ward of the institution. He was no longer allegedly, or I mean, I, I should say uh, legally, uh, belonged to his parents. An institution where boys slept 130 to a room, literally head to toe in narrow cots. You also mentioned the, the benevolent cop who walked him in there. He was one of the father figures in his life. Uh, there was none maybe more important than Brother Matthias at St. Mary's. Who, who was he? What was his role in the Babe Ruth story? Well, you know, he's become as mythic, in, you know, in his role in Babe Ruth's life as, as anybody. He was a huge guy, somewhere between 6'4 and 6'6, depending who you believed, or 230, 240. And so big enough anyway that his cell where he lived, and I don't mean a jail cell, that's they're using it in the religious sense, they had to make the door open out rather than in because his bed had to be extra long for him to fit in it. And his role was first cited in a uh, 1920 newspaper serial autobiography ghosted by Westbrook Pegler, then a, you know, uh, early cub reporter, who actually never interviewed Babe Ruth. Now, he didn't, <laughs> he didn't admit that until 25 years later when he finally said, oh, I made it all up in, over a weekend in a Manhattan apartment because I could never catch up with him. So all the, the mythology about his father, Babe's father taking him to St. Mary's and the tearful, you know, farewell and the father being decimated and the parents reluctantly sending him there and Brother Matthias showing up at his bed that night and saying, it's all right, Babe, you know, come out and play for the Colts tomorrow, was completely, you know, born in the imagination of Westbrook Pegler. Now, clearly, uh, Brother Matt, who was an assistant athletic director and who was big enough that he entertained the boys um, who were always outside playing baseball at the end of the day by hitting fungos to them. Clearly, he was an important guy in Babe's life. But one of the brothers that I interviewed, who actually spent his first night at, in the Zaverian Order at St. Mary's, said, well, you know, there were other people who were just as important who didn't get the credit that they, that they deserved. And it would be much later in life that Brother Matt and others from St. Mary's would play a different role. They were sort of summoned at various points in Ruth's career to say, you know, would you get a hold of yourself? Yeah. I mean, the Yankees and Christy Walsh would summon uh, the uh, superintendent who was then uh, Brother Paul or uh, Matthias to come to New York and say, or to Chicago and say, you know, get your house in order. But I, I credit mostly Christy Walsh with having done that. He was exceptionally smart. By 1925, when Babe Ruth has the biggest crisis of his playing career and really his life, it's the stomach ache heard around the world. It's when his first marriage really ends in a uh, with a separation agreement that calls for him to pay Helen 
$100,000 over the next four years, which he doesn't have because he's had no restraint in spending all the money he's accumulated. He's lost it in gambling. He's lost it in generosity. And Walsh figures out uh, when when Babe goes to him in 1926 and needs a $4,000 loan, uh, Walsh says, yeah, I'll lend you the money as long as you agree not to buy any land, make any financial decisions <laughs> without me approving. And so at the nadir of Ruth's financial well-being, Walsh steps in and tricks him and crowbars him into saving money by creating a uh, irrevocable trust fund into which all his outside income was placed. The bellyache heard around the world more than a bellyache, really, more than a bad season. The way you describe it, it's the marriage falling apart. It was a dark night that transformed both Babe Ruth financially, but to agree his personality as well. And it transformed journalism as well, because suddenly there was a darker side of the Babe Ruth story that the Daily News might be interested in publishing. There were intimations of that in 23, when he was when there was a paternity suit, and Marshall Hunt, the Daily News reporter who was assigned to cover Babe Ruth 24-7, objected when, when his managing editor informed him that he had to go to, the Babe Ruth, to Babe Ruth's hotel suite in spring training and ask him about this. He was said, you know, this guy was like, I, I can't do that. Well, two years later, uh, when Babe Ruth has been acting out and showing up late and flouting every team rule, and he's out of control in a way that people didn't really understand. It only makes sense in hindsight. Miller Huggins, the Yankees manager, who had promised and promised to restrain him and never had, finally had enough on August 29th, 1925. And when Babe Ruth showed up late at Sportsman's Park, he said, don't bother getting dressed today, babe. And he suspended him indefinitely and fined him $5,000, which was, to say the least, unprecedented. Now, Ruth somehow had it in his head that uh, the Yankee owner, Jake Rupert, and general manager, uh, Ed Barrow would support him in this, which of course was folly. They of course were part of the decision to do this. And then he th thought he would appeal to the commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who hated him. So that was folly. But what happened that was so revolutionary in that moment was that Captain Joe Patterson, uh, the New York Daily News, decided to treat Babe Ruth like a news story, not by the standards that were always employed by the sports department. So he published a picture of Babe Ruth's mistress. Everybody knew he'd been living with her. Everybody knew he'd been carrying on. Part of Miller Huggins, uh, you know, upset was that he had warned Babe about this relationship just before they left on that road trip. And what Joe Patterson did using technology invented by the Chicago Tribune and announced at the beginning of 25 was a system called Telepix. So he puts Claire Hodgson on the front page of the Daily News, and she was a gorgeous woman in a cloche hat and very pert, rouged lips. And he sends it overnight to Chicago and to the LA Times, in, obviously in Los Angeles. And suddenly this woman's face which launched a thousand headlines. She's everywhere. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the coverage of him at that point, you know, all bets were off. And again, Walsh steps in 
and basically makes Ruth recognize that if he doesn't clean up his act, he's going to be in trouble. So they stage a reconciliation with his poor wife, Helen, who's having yet another nervous breakdown, and uh, is ensconced at the Concourse Plaza Hotel up the street from Yankee Stadium. And there's a horde, maybe 50 reporters in her bedroom when Babe Ruth comes and buries his head in her bosom and photographers, you know, take the picture and her hands beseeching and him, his head in his hands. And it's all, you know, big story. They've, they've reconciled. He denies it all with Claire. And then he goes up on the roof of the concourse plaza and mugs for newsreel cameras showing that he's really in fine fettle. And that's a picture of Yankee Stadium off in the background over his shoulder. <laughs> the, the stadium from which he had been banished. Yeah. And, of course, if that's the low point of the narrative arc, well, he has to come back. A lot of people in 1925 thought Babe Ruth was through, and then he proceeds to have perhaps two of the best seasons in baseball history. Yeah, they really wrote him off. And by doing that and basically lowering expectations of him, it made what he did, what he accomplished in 26, and, of course, in 27 with the 60 home runs, appear even larger, almost magical. It was as if he was a phoenix rising from the dead. I mean, he did have a lousy year in 25. He did have surgery. And not only did he have surgery in New York coming back from spring training, which Ed Barrow unkindly asserted in, in Sato Vachi was a social disease, I don't think there's any evidence for that being true. Not that he never had one, but I don't think that was what this was about. He actually had to have additional um, treatment for this at the end of the season. So it was, it was a real illness, and he, uh, he came back too soon. But what he was able to do in 26 and 27 was amazing. He hadn't hit you know, more than 50 home runs after 1921, and here he is brazenly on New Year's Day crowing that, you know, he's, he's promising as a New Year's resolution 60 home runs for Jake. And as I, as I said before, this was a man who was born to make promises and keep them. And so he did. And on September 30th, he rounds the bases at Yankee Stadium, crowing 60, count them 60. I'd like to see some other son of a bitch do that. So let's get into a little baseball history at this moment. Even the most casual fan knows that Babe Ruth was a pitcher before he became a famous slugger, but maybe they don't understand just how good a pitcher he was. I think you quote Danny Okrent as saying that the Babe was both Cezanne and Beethoven, a spectacular left-handed pitcher, and then the greatest hitter the world had ever seen. Yeah, I was amused this fall watching that you know, seven-hour World Series game, which went longer, by the way, than the entire 1939 World Series, um, to compare it with <laughs> Babe Ruth's first World Series start for the Boston Red Sox in 1916, Game 2, which was played in Boston but not at Fenway Park because the Red Sox understood that there was bigger capacity at Braves Field. Uh, he gave up one run. Um, in, the, in the first inning on a inside-the-park home run, which is the kind of home run that people hit back then before Babe Ruth took the game into his own hands. And then he shut out the Dodgers for another 13.1 innings. And it was the beginning of a streak of scoreless innings uh, that was then completed and made, you know, 29 and two-thirds, I think, uh, in the 1918 World Series against the Cubs. 
Now, again, for non-historians of the game, you alluded to it. Describe the difference in the baseball of the Ty Cobb era, the, the dead ball era, and the kind of baseball that Babe Ruth invented. So there's a fabulous, this may be, I, you know, I really don't like statistics very much, Neil, but this one I just adore. In 1918, when Babe Ruth is still, you know, one of the greatest left-handed pitchers uh, in baseball, um, perhaps the best, and you can make the argument that he would have made the Hall of Fame just on pitching had he remained a pitcher. Um, in 1918, 235 home runs were hit in the major leagues. An economist friend of mine um, made me aware of this fact. You were more likely to have seen or known one of the 177 American survivors of the sinking of the Titanic than to have seen a home run in 1918. So that's what the game was like until Babe Ruth took it into his own hands and away from the micromanagers in the dugout, guys like John McGraw, who would move men around the bases like chess pieces, and they would say, well, just hit the other way, you know, and I, we can advance these runners one base at a time. And Babe Ruth basically said, you know what, why should I do that when I can end this thing with one swing of the bat? And I think one of the things that goes un, unmentioned about him is that he had the advantage of understanding pitching as a batter, having been that pitcher. He was the only guy um, that I can think of until, you know, Otani's come along and we'll have to wait and see what he becomes after his Tommy John surgery and after 20 years in the majors, if he makes it that long. Uh, he was the only guy who understood how to apply the laws of physics and the kinetic chain used to hurl a baseball, what uh, Grantland Rice called his whistling shooters, um, and how to hit one with leverage and torque. And I think that was a, you know, a, an incredible advantage to him, as was his size. He literally was bigger than the game. He was six foot one and a half and 185 or 100 to 195 when he arrived in Boston in 1914. Uh, he was a tall drink of water. He was twice the size of everybody else. That, too, was an advantage, though he had to slow himself down in, in the batter's box to try to time the junk that so many pitchers threw back then. And he was very happy when new balls and became used and spitters were outlawed and you could actually see the ball. He talked about how hard it was to see half of them uh, because they were so dark from being rubbed up and God knows what. Um, but he, he really was very modern in his understanding of the physics of these two essential acts of baseball. And modern, too. In that aspect of his personality, you argue that his managers, you know, wanted him to bunt or hit the other way from time to time. That game, they understood, and he said, no, the rules do not apply to me. Yeah, and that's pretty much the way he treated the world. Um, though I will say, and this is, you know, something that I found incredibly poignant, when he gets out of St. Mary's, and he stayed in that institution longer than virtually anybody, he was a lifer. People, he and he was bigger than everybody, so people thought he was a staff member because they were indistinguishable. They all wore the same overalls made in the tailor shop. Um, so when he gets out at age 19, um, what is the first thing he does? It isn't to run amok 
and begin to indulge those appetites for which he became famous, his first instinct was to marry the first woman who was kind to him. And she was a waitress in a, in a coffee shop in Boston where he ate breakfast every day. Uh, and her name was Helen Woodford, and she was 16 years old when they got married in October. So what he tried to do was to give himself the family that he never had. And that's an act of conformity, not defiance. That it didn't last, that he discovered that there were other women who would be interested in, you know, uh, making themselves available to Babe Ruth. That's not shocking to me. Um, that he wasn't a good husband or father, that's not shocking to me. That he would indulge those appetites, having been incarcerated in a school where they had meat once a week, and guess what it was? Hot dogs, that he gorged himself on them the rest of his life. None of that is a shock to me. More on that after a short break. My guest is Jane Levy. Her book is The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. If you're on the Truth, Politics, and Power website, I invite you to explore our archives, which include the six-part series, The Democracy Test. Stay with us. I'm Neil Conan. It's Truth, Politics, and Power. This is Truth, Politics, and Power. I'm Neil Conan with special guest Jane Levy, author of The Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. And I want to ask you, Jane, about an extraordinary picture spread across the inside cover of your book. Uh, the first thing the reader sees when they open the book, and the last. It's an unmistakable picture of Babe Ruth wearing a straw hat and a bow tie standing... What will you describe it? It was taken in Syracuse in August 1925, that that season of upheaval for him. And it's uh, the Yankees played exhibition games in season in those years. People think that he was fined if he didn't participate. That's not true. He was paid extra to participate. So he always showed up for those. And boys in Syracuse piled out of the, that stadium, and all 5,000 of them tried to cram themselves into a single camera frame. And you see them hanging all over him like a, a like a cheap boa and you know cramming their their flesh into into his and they have access to him in a way that is unthinkable today you know imagine Aaron Judge standing still for that kind of crowding and there's and the other thing that's notable about that picture Neil is it's very modern in the sense that yes they want to be close to him and they, and they are literally pre pressing the flesh, but they are also all looking at the camera. And it's that mm. moment in you know, the development of, of a modern sensibility when they want to be seen with him, but they also want to be seen being seen with him. And, I, and so the camera, the picture is striking, but it's most striking because of his smile. This is where he is most at home in his skin. This is what is the, this is the result of having grown up in an institution which, as you mentioned, was overcrowded, sleeping head to toe with, you know, a hundred boys in a room in identical wrought iron cots laid out like pinstripes with just enough room between them to, for a bent wood chair and to get down on their knees and say their prayers. Those boys slept together, they ate together, they bathed together to the extent they bathed, they played baseball together, they called each other names, and this is what he knew. He grew up knowing what it was to be public. What he didn't know 
was how to be alone. So when boys would come and flock to him later in his public career, that's where he lived. That's why he was a natural to be the first modern celebrity. It does not mean that, that he was dumb. He was denigrated from the first time he goes to the major league. Some of his Red Sox teammates call him Tarzan or, you know, the big baboon, a, a big ape. He took great resentment at that. He was, as we say, a man of appetite. And again, that didn't mean he was dumb. No, and he had a very acute sense of his worth, and he had a very acute sense of the rights of ballplayers to make a living, for example, in the off-season, barnstorming across the country, doing the one thing they knew how to do best. And he also, I mean, I don't want, I, Walsh, the agent who organized those tours, was a visionary. But Ruth, in, in many of his, uh, you know, quotes that were not ghostwritten, talks about how they're doing a good thing for Major League Baseball by going out to these towns around the country that wouldn't otherwise have access to Big League Baseball. What he's doing, in essence, is creating a market, and he's foreshadowing the, the market that Major League Baseball eventually would become, including on the West Coast. So he was, in many ways, far ahead of you know the, the same owners, who many of whom did not employ the uh, radio technology to broadcast games every day because they were scared it would uh, decimate their attendance. The Chicago owners, they understood it, and they started broadcasting games in 1924. Yankee owners wouldn't do it. So when, in 1927, the only regular season game broadcast by the Yankees was opening day, which begins with a pregame, uh, a pregame interview live from the grandstand with Babe Ruth with Graham McNamee. And, you know, other teams were way ahead of them, but it took Major League Baseball a long time to understand what Babe Ruth knew instinctively. Babe Ruth lived in Jim Crow America. Uh, there's another picture in your book of him standing on uh, one of those barnstorming tours, casually leaning against an outfield fence with African-American fans leaning over. There are always, in so many of these pictures, hands reaching for him. It's very striking how similar um, the need is and the desire is among all sections of the population to touch him, and to almost as if to see if he was real. As you know, Neil, Ruth was followed around the major leagues with rumors that he was perhaps uh, passing. Um, it was a very prevalent belief in other words, an African-American man passing as what? Thank you, yes. And that actually began um, in the playground and the, on the uh, f playing fields of St. Mary's. And there was no evidence for it at all. It was based purely on stereotype that he was swarthy, which his grandchildren would say to me was a function of having been out in the skin all, uh, out in the sun all day and having uh, olivey, uh, you know, complected skin. And also because he had a wide nose and supposedly, you know, big, thick lips. So the boys on St. Mary's, who were not gentle, uh, gave him an absolutely horrific racial uh, stereotypical name. Sh should I say it or would you rather I not? Well, with that warning, I think we do need to say it because it's an awful term. But it was what people did say in those days. Well, the kids called him nigger lips and that followed him 
throughout the major leagues. When he got to Boston, many of his teammates called him by the N-word. And as you said, they seemed to think, and this, this too is part of the thing that followed him everywhere, somehow that he was less than human. He didn't know who Tarzan was. And when, when one of the Red Sox uh, managed to finally explain to him about Edward Rice Burroughs, you know, he was enraged. You're calling me an ape? Now, he didn't exactly exude great hygiene, personal hygiene. He hadn't learned too much of that at St. Mary's. And it was understandable that they were kind of disgusted by his lack of uh, understanding that a toothbrush was a proprietary object. Uh, but, you know, to imply that he was less than human was certainly uh, horrible. And I think a lot of the terms that followed him throughout his major league career were those kind of racially coded phrases that were what disguised what was just under the surface, this belief that his mother, as some of the players would say, crossed over the line. And again, since he never talked about his parents, you know, that kind of speculation, awful as it was, prospered. And that was also because dugouts, as you know, are not places for sissies. And as he became a stronger and stronger hitter and more and more important, they would do anything they could to distract him, you know, in the batter's box. So what are you going to call somebody from the batter's box? You're going to call them the N-word. You're going to say, your mother must have passed over. You're going to, you know, you're going to call them all those names. And there's only one time that I could find on record where he ever responds to this. And that's in the 1922 World Series against the Giants, the last time, the last season that the Yankees and the Giants shared the polo grounds. And he has a lousy series. He has an infection in his elbow. Um, newspaper reporters are questioning whether the injury is legitimate. And um, he's heckled all through this game by a guy named Johnny Rollins, who was a uh, you know, he was a scrub, basically, and if he'd gotten thrown out of the game for it, you know, so be it, though umpires didn't do that then. So he's calling him all sorts of horrible names, and Babe Ruth barges into the Giants' locker room after uh, this game, and it, it, you know, that's a breach of etiquette that's, you know, I in baseball, you don't know that there's etiquette, but that's, that's a breach of baseball etiquette. And he picks Johnny Rawlings up by the scruff of the neck, and he says... You can call me a prick and you can call me a cocksucker, just don't get personal. And the Giants regard this as hilarious and are laughing. And he turns and he sees that there are all these reporters in the locker room. And so he says to the reporters, you know, please, please don't write that. And given the press box omerta of the time, they agreed. And it did not get published until Frank Graham wrote it for in a history of the Yankees in 1943. If it was written anywhere else, I couldn't find it. And then it was repeated by Bob Creamer in his 1974 biography of the Babe. And so this refrain kept coming up over and over and over again. And it again reared its very ugly head in the 32 World Series in Chicago. And that was the famous called shot. Yes, um, there were two versions of the called shot. Uh, one was the one that was published in the African-American press, and one was the, you know, wh the, the white press. 
in in the African American stories, um, there was a guy named Amos Loudmouth Latimer, who was sitting out in the grandstand, and he was the traveling secretary for a Negro League team, quite a good one, the Forty Seventh Street Giants, and he was throwing lemons at Babe Ruth throughout the game, and in the telling of the African-American press, when Babe Ruth is pointing, he's not pointing at Charlie Root, the Cubs pitcher. Uh, He's pointing at this guy and telling him to shut up because one of the things that Amos had called him throughout the game was brother. In addition, the Cubs had been heckling him with the same kind of racial invective. And the Yankees had been trading it back and forth. The guy who was mo- was loudest in the Cubs dugout was a guy named Guy Bush, uh, who was a Mississippi guy, and he was uh, he was well, let's say he was old fashioned in his racial attitudes, and so the Yankees would yell back, "You who, who are you calling? Why are you calling our our guy uh, the N word? Look at your pitcher!" It was a very testy series, and Bush would hit him uh, so badly that in the next game that uh, had the series gone on, Babe Ruth wouldn't have been able to play. We're running out of time, and I want to get on to another subject. We spoke about father figures before. Did Babe Ruth seek out mothers as well? Um, there are m- many people who, who regard uh, his second wife, Claire, um, as a mother figure. I'm not sure I completely agree with that. She, she did take control of the pocketbook and purge Christy Ruth from his position of control in the mid-30s. Um, she did put him on diets. She put him on a, an allowance. He was, you know, given $50 a week to spend. So I think later in, in their relationship, she, she did some of that. Um, and she did give him a home. And between her daughter, Julia, who Babe would adopt and who is still alive, and his daughter from the first marriage to Helen whose paternity and actually it was his parentage altogether was uh, unclear. Um, He actually had the family that he had never had before. You call him a window wisher. That his granddaughter, Donna Anilovich, um, called him that. And she said he was the kind of guy who would pass by uh, you know, on the street and see a family sitting inside at a dinner table, you know, talking to each other and wonder, you know, why didn't I get that? His daughter in that first marriage, again, her parentage is unclear, Dorothy, he ends up banishing her to be raised by Catholic nuns, not in an orphanage, really, but maybe she was an orphan. We don't know. But he replicates the pattern of his childhood. Well, yes, exactly right. And that, you know, and isn't that the lesson of history? You do what you what you know. And it worked out well for Babe Ruth. I would I would venture to say that St. Mary's probably saved his life, given the family that, you know, he otherwise would have had. Um, But once he and Helen split, he had very little to do with Dorothy. She took up with a dentist in Boston, and they placed her in a school, a Catholic school, boarding school, in, in Wellesley, where she got left uh, uh, on weekends when everybody else went home and, and nobody visited her. And she pointedly said that, you know, which was a replication of what happened to Babe Ruth at St. Mary's when his father never came to visit him after, you know, sending him away there. And I think the treatment of his first wife can only be described as shameful. I agree. I think, you know, he went about spending 
tons of money on all sorts of things and putting money in the um, into the uh, trust fund that Christy Walsh created and always being behind on the payments that he agreed to make in a separation agreement dated August 4th, 1925. So that was certainly unethical, that the marriage didn't last, that they didn't know how to be together, um, you know, that she... Uh, was left behind in the most brutal kind of way is certainly also true. You ended up living with Babe Ruth for eight years. It's an odd thing to say, (laughs) but anyone who's written a book about anybody knows how that kind of thing happens. What did you come to know about him that you didn't know? What kind of a guy was he? Well, you're right. I, I I like to say I hold a major league record now for having spent the most consecutive nights alone with Babe Ruth, certainly more than either of his wives, because he could leave Or them. any of his Yankee roommates. Right. <laughs> he could leave them. He couldn't leave me. Um, I think that filling in the first 20 years of his life and understanding his need for public approbation was essential to understanding how he became the big fella. His parents abandoned him to this institution to to make a self and to make a life. And damn it, he did it. That it was flawed is, as I said, is hardly surprising. But here's a kid, he's seven years old. You know, they leave him there. They've lost all their children, but two of them. And they still don't want him. You know, how could that possibly have felt to a seven-year-old boy? And the neediness of him and the sadness that you see in his eyes throughout his life and the, the zeal to be around kids and to give them some of what he didn't have is remarkable. And let me finally ask you about the subtitle of your book, Babe Ruth and the World He Created. You point out in, I think it was his first World Series, Updates on the games are being transmitted by Carrier Pigeon. This was before radio. And as he goes out on the field at Yankee Stadium in 1948 to say his famous farewell, there are television cameras following him. Now, obviously, that technology would have developed independent of Babe Ruth, but how did he change that world, our world, as we see it? Well, I think he and Christy Walsh created a template for how to be famous and how to uh, implement and exploit all the new technologies, by which I mean not just radio and television and telex and telepix, but all the principles of marketing. You know, Edward Bernays and and Ivy Lee were in the process of creating Madison Avenue at the same time and learning how to make people want things that they didn't know they needed or wanted. And then, you know, the next step was to put an athlete's face on it and make them want to be like that guy even more. So I think the span of his, his, his life and career, as you say, you know, with 1914, he comes into the major leagues, there's no radio. Fame is circumscribed by newspaper circulation and by what you can find out, what you can say in 10 words on a, tele, a telegram. And by the time he dies, he's got a TV uh, in, his, in his living room so he can watch games that he's too sick to attend. And there, you know, he's got uh, microphones for TV stations set up in front of him uh, at Yankee Stadium on June 13th, 1948, when he comes to say his farewell uh, to the team that shunned him after uh, his playing career was done. 
Jane Levy's book is The Big Fella and the World He Created. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Neil. The executive producer of Truth, Politics, and Power is Sue Goodwin. Our managing producer is Arjun Hutchins. I'm Neil Conan. Thanks for listening. It's Truth, Politics, and Power.